I'm pleased to be back with you again for the third week here. I'd like to start by reading some scripture. This morning we will be reading from Psalm 63. It's on page 409 of your pew Bible. And then we'll also be turning to the pages of the New Testament and reading from John chapter 6, verses 30 to 37, and that's on page 755. Let's begin with Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you've been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. And then from the New Testament, from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 30 to 37, And if you're able, in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, would you stand with me for the reading of the Gospel? Beginning at verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe, and and what work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Have you ever heard the expression, food for thought? Carries the idea that you ingest something into your mind, uh, something you think about, something you, you take in. It's a thought, an understanding. It's something that you dwell upon. Now, I remember as a child uh, sitting at the dinner table with that plate of cold carrots. They weren't cold maybe when I first put them on the plate or when my mother put them on the plate, but they became cold. And we weren't allowed to leave the table until we had eaten what was on our plate. And so I used to sit there sometimes just as long as possible. I even remember one time sleeping at the table, my head down there next to that plate of cold carrots. My only thought was that I hate cold carrots. No matter how long I sat at the table, that food was not going to change how I thought about it. Now, in this morning's message and in the passage we're looking at, 
we're going to be looking at some food in God's Word, and particularly here in the Psalms. Food that actually changes thought. That's my hope for you this morning. And so I hope you did bring your recipe books this morning and you got that email message, because we're going to be sharing in kind of a Martha Stewart kind of way how to take in some food so that we can all go home from here and feed upon God's Word from the poetry we've been looking at that will actually then change the way we think about God and His Word. We have been looking at Old Testament poetry the past three weeks now, including this week, and really focusing upon uh, the Psalms and the poetry in the Psalms. And as a result of our time together, we've learned uh, about a lot of things, but last week I pointed out the three dimensions to Old Testament poetry. And it was this idea that in poetry, uh, God teaches us about himself, and we called that the educational dimension. Uh, The second dimension was that God speaks to our soul. He connects with us at the deepest level of who we are, and we called that the spiritual dimension. And finally, in poetry, we learn that God saves us and satisfies us with himself, and we refer to that as the gospel dimension of Old Testament poetry. And so as we unfold Psalm 63 today, uh, my hope is that those dimensions will become clearer to us and will gain a greater grasp of all that God has for us in the poetic as we continue to study it, hopefully, and look at His eternal Word. As a result, it should change then how we think about God and how we think about our lives and the world we live in. Let's get to Psalm 63 here. Psalm 63 is a part of what's called the confidence of God psalms, and it's where the writer expresses his satisfaction or his confidence in all that God can do for him. Now, what's striking about this and the psalmist writing it is that the psalmist seems to find a resolution for himself and for his soul, but not for his physical surroundings. We're going to see that his circumstances, they don't seem to change, but yet he changes. Or really, we should say that God changes him in the process of this psalm. And what we're going to learn is that the deliverance that God does for us could be that God just changes us internally so that we see things differently, we perceive our surroundings differently, but that our situation may never change and our situation may never improve in this life. But our perspective on our situation will change because God meets with us. He meets with us inside and he speaks the language of our hearts and our minds, and we respond to God in that way. So let's look at Psalm 63. It begins in verse 1, O God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now this psalm is thought to have been written by David while he was in the wilderness fleeing from Saul, as Saul was, of course, seeking to try and kill him. And this is where the language then of the desert comes up, or the wilderness, and the desire for God being similar to the desire, as he says, for water. Now, when I read verse 1, and you hear of the conditions that he's in, and you imagine that he's in this wilderness, this desert-like atmosphere, this awful geography where there is no water, as he says in verse 1, but the psalmist wants to tell you he has a thirsty soul. My first thought is, Shouldn't we be seeking water first, maybe? And yet the psalmist's first thought is for the satisfaction of his soul. Either he is crazy, 
or he might understand something about God that most people don't. That in the case of being in the desert, his first thought is, will my soul find satisfaction with God? In the midst of very difficult circumstances, will I be pleased with God here? When this new difficult comes upon him, will he find satisfaction with God amidst the difficulty? The writer compares the thirst of his soul to that of his body. In a situation where there is no water, in the desert, a barren land, a dry land, a place that he says has no water, there's no oasis nearby. And just as in the desert, there would be an earnest need for water. So too it is with the longing that the writer expresses that the thirst of his soul be satisfied with God. The yearning of his flesh needs water, but more importantly than that, he needs God to attend to his soul. And he recalls moments with God. Look at verses 2 to 3. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary. Oh, to see your power and your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. He's had some previous significant moments with God we read of here. The writer knows and recalls how great God is, that the taste of God is exquisite. He's familiar with God's power and with God's strength and how God does act on behalf of His people. He's experienced the greatness of God, the splendor of God, the the weightiness of who God is. And now He's in the desert and just like water, He wants to drink in more of God for the sake of His soul. Verse 3, then, he recalls God's great covenant love. It's been, been in, I think, all the Psalms we've looked at in these last few weeks. This idea of loving kindness. It's the love in the Old Testament that God gives because He's promised to love His people and to care for them. The writer's very familiar with God's love. And there's nothing like it, he wants you to know. There's nothing more satisfying Nothing is more filling, nothing is more embracing, nothing is more caring, nothing is more perfect, nothing is more powerful or more important than the love of God, even life itself, he wants you to know. That's how he feels. That's He's pouring out his heart. Now, if we pause for just a moment here, you can see that in these first three verses, some of the dimensions of Old Testament poetry that we've kind of talked about. The, the first dimension... The educational dimension that God is teaching us. He's teaching us the value of himself through the eyes and experiences of the psalmist. In that God's love here is greater than our very lives. And the experiences of life and living can't compare to the experiencing of having the God of the universe love you. At the same time, the language of the the second dimension is here in the psalm as well the spiritual dimension where God speaks to the soul. Here, God has spoken to the writer's soul with his very love, and it meets the needs of the writer. And so as we return to verse 3 then, we see that because of God's love, there is a reason to praise God, and the psalmist wants to praise him. He's tasted God. He's experienced the fullness of the love of God. And because of it, he will praise God for loving him. Remember, we worship God for who he is. We praise him for what he does. 
Let's look as we read on here in verses 4 and 5. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. The writer will bless God for the duration of his life. He lifts up his hands in prayer, and it symbolizes that the writer is open and he's receptive to God. That's why his hands are raised. He knows where his provisions come from. And he's offering up his hands in openness to God. The writer in verse 5 tells God that he is actually satisfied with God. Right? My soul, in verse 5, my soul is satisfied. His soul, the very life of him, the core of his person, we might say, is satisfied in the same way that one is satisfied at the best of meals. When I was in the fourth grade, my teacher, Mrs. Ross, she would read us the Little House on the Prairie novels. And I don't know if you're familiar with them, but the descriptions of the meals in those books, they would just go on and on that the family would sit down to. And for pages, she would be describing each dish and how it tasted and how it was prepared. And it would get to the point where you were just a little kid salivating there in the fourth grade. I I doubt I ate as much paste in fourth grade, you know, as I ate. And here the psalmist is telling us that he is satisfied with God just as if he's had the best of meals. That's the marrow and the fatness he talks about in verse 5. Does that sound good? Even today it is the fat that makes it taste good, and that's what he's expressing to us. So today when you push yourself back from that table and you cry out, no more. So the writer tells us that that's his experience with God, of being satisfied with God. As if he's had the best meal ever, God satisfies his soul. And that's the third dimension of Old Testament poetry right here again. The gospel dimension. And when we say gospel, especially in the Old Testament, we need to think in terms of that divine deliverance. We unfolded that uh, um, several months back when we looked at how gospel in, in Isaiah means divine deliverance. It's God working on our behalf to deliver us. And in the New Testament, we learn that the ultimate divine deliverance is found in Jesus. That Jesus defines what it means to be saved from peril, the ultimate peril, spiritual peril. And really he comes to define then what the gospel is. And all the Psalms then point forward in a prophetic way to the gospel dimension. They're not all prophetic in the sense they all tell us about the life of Christ, though many do tell us about Christ. The Psalms and the poetic, however, do point to the necessity of a permanent salvation by God. A deliverance that God alone will secure and can secure. And a satisfaction that God alone can fulfill in His people's lives and in their hearts, in their minds, and in their souls. The Psalms profoundly point us forward to Christ in expression and in their inherent seeking of the fullness of God. The psalmist wants to find and know the fullness of God. Where can we find the fullness of God? Only at the cross of Christ. And that's made clear, really. And it's grounded for us in the reality that there are more quotes from the psalms in the New Testament by Jesus and the apostles than any other Old Testament book. 
And so they're either all pointing to Jesus, or Jesus and the disciples really misunderstood the Psalms. The poetic points us forward to God saving and satisfying us for all eternity, and that's the gospel dimension present in Old Testament poetry. God does just not meet with me and have a relationship with with me like any other relationship we have. I mean, God's just not a part of a well-rounded life as so much of spirituality uh, seems to view in our culture today. That God's just part of a well-rounded life for you. And so you should have a little slice of God. No, the psalmist is declaring, God, He satisfies me. Even when I'm in the desert. The psalmist is really saying that God is better than life itself. Because nothing else in life will ever replace what God alone can provide to His people. The people that He created. I mean, God's made the biggest investment in all of us. God gives us life. A people that He created to eat and to drink. God created people who need food and who need water. But more than that, the psalmist here, in profound words, tells us and shows us by his own experience that we need God more than we need food and water. And if we maybe take a a step further than this here, it really, herein lies the the power of the poetic, the, the chutzpah of the poetic, that God speaks to us. He speaks to our soul through the experience of another. So we're reading Psalm 63, and he's speaking to us through the experience that David had with God and expresses in writing. He uses the experience of the writer to speak to our experiences and connect with us. And then as the writer experiences God, so too then we experience God. And reliving His experience of God as it unites with our experience. And we learn about having a relationship with God by seeing people in the Scripture have relationship with God. And so as the psalmist has taken in God, he sings God's praises. And yet again, then at the end of verse 5, we turn back to the text, and the satisfaction that he has with God, in God, is something that he relives over and over. He ponders, he remembers all through the night. That's what verse 6 and 8 begin to show us. We're beginning to see that the writer has some food here, doesn't he? The writer's got a big plate of food. And the food that he takes in truly changes the way he thinks about life. Look at verse 6. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you've been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. He remembers with fondness here, and, and he tells us that God has been his place of refuge. As the writer spends hours remembering God and all that God has done for him. When I make it to the pillow... Sleep, number one thing on my mind. For this writer, he makes it to the pillow. God, number one thing on his mind. In the shadow of your wings expresses the idea of a protection that God gives. And the expression occurs actually some four other times in the Psalms. And the writer's ultimate response is to cling to God. The word means to pursue or to cleave to God. Remember, as a, a child, uh, my siblings and I would kind of line up to ride on Dad's leg. 
as he walked around the house. This idea that you would just jump on, you know, and you'd sit on his foot and hold on to his leg and he'd kind of carry you around the house. You'd hold on for dear life. That's the language. Since God feeds and He satisfies the soul, we will cling to God, the psalmist says. All the while, the psalmist is awaiting the deliverance that God will bring. That's what verse 9 and 10 allude to, that God will come to judge humanity at some point. Look at verse 9. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. The writer's enemies who seek him will eventually, in God's judgment, be overtaken by the sword. They will end up in punishment in the lowest part of Sheol, is the language here. It's the depths of the earth. They're going to hell. That's what the writer's saying. They will, as the writer declares, be left unburied. There'll be food for, for prey. And then the psalm ends in verse 11 with a, a note of hope for the king to rejoice in God. That he will be delivered that those who have kept their allegiance to Him will glory in God's deliverances because all of His enemies will eventually be stopped. Now this psalm is both a lament, I mean, he's complaining to God, right? And we said that was good, right? That you get in God's face and you tell Him how bad your life really is. And so he does that. And at the same time, it's a psalm where he's expressing the confidence in God that God satisfies the psalmist. And the language that's used expresses the writer's soul satisfaction in God. He's satisfied with God, not with what God is going to give him. And that's an important note. Instead, the writer would rather have his soul be satisfied than have God provide him water. Though he lives in the desert, and he needs that too in order to keep living. The soul's true satisfaction is found in God and not in what God provides for us in this life. It's God for the sake of God alone. And it raises the question then, why do we seek God? For what God can provide us in terms of that full life? Certain benchmarks we all have in mind? That we feel like we don't want to die until we've done these set of things or these things have happened to us. So, do we seek God for what God can give us? Or is God enough? Just God. As your life unfolds now, probably your relationships, they're not all going to work out like you want them to. You probably won't become the person who possesses all that you wanted before you die. You probably won't have exactly the family you wanted your children, they may not become all that you had hoped for them. Your job, your place in this life may be less than your list of goals that you keep. The psalmist asks the question, will God be enough for you? We read from the Gospel of John this morning, a brief passage in John 6, where Jesus repeatedly uses the language of being the one sent from God who satisfies us like food and drink. Is the great love of God in the Old Testament that finds personification in Christ enough for you? 
Right now, would He satisfy you if He was all you had? Just Him. Or do you want more? Perhaps your value system might value something higher than God Himself. And functionally, daily, you use your relationship with God to get what you really want in this life. Are you trying to use God to get the life you always wanted? The life your heart and your soul have always wanted. And that's why maybe your happiness is always contingent upon your life's circumstances and not upon the God who sent His Son to love you. Just as we said at the beginning, the psalmist doesn't find any resolution for his circumstances. He does not find resolution for the situation around him, but he does find resolution for his soul, and he finds a satisfaction for that soul in God. And in the language of the poet, he finds his deepest needs met, and we find our deepest needs met, of the soul to know the love of God and to experience Him and His love. And in the language of the poet this morning, we can find our soul's satisfaction in God alone. And if you're not satisfied with God this morning, then perhaps maybe you are just trying to use God to get what you really want in this life. Something other than what God has offered to you in His love. The psalmist understands that the satisfaction for your life will never be found in getting to the perfect set of circumstances. Because new circumstances will always come upon us. And you will find yourself just like the psalmist in desert after desert after desert. The psalmist understands that life's true satisfaction is found in God who can satisfy the soul's deepest need of rescue and peace with Him. Now the dimensions of God's Word, whether instructional or spiritual or gospel, within the poetic, they fit into the lives and the souls of the people that God created to know Him to the fullest. And it's it's in God's Word that we not only learn of that fullness, but we also experience a filling by God of Himself as we believe in the Gospel as we experience the Gospel in God's Word, and as it points ultimately to Jesus Christ, the pinnacle Gospel moment of God on behalf of His people. And in this way, then, in the poetic, in the Psalms, in the Old Testament, those words, they become food sent from God for us to consume. Food that truly changes the way we think about life. It's food for thought about our lives, about our circumstances, about our diseases, about our deaths, about our situations, about our struggles. It's food that changes the way we think about life's circumstances. The psalmist understands something about life and knowing God. He's not crazy, is he? He instead knows the key to being satisfied in this life, and it's found in God because God created the soul that way, to find its ultimate satisfaction in God. We just try and put other things in the soul to make it fit. 
When I was a kid, I used to have that toy with all the puzzle shapes. You know, you got the triangle one, and it's a little ball, and you stick it in the triangle hole, and you got the square, and you stick it in the square hole. Like you, you were probably like me. You were that kid who had the the round one, and you're trying to jam that thing in the triangle hole. You got a hammer, and you're just you're banging on that thing. You're going to make it fit. That's us with our lives, isn't it? We take every piece we can and try and fit it into the soul to get fullness, but we skip the God-shaped piece that actually fits into our soul. The psalmist wants more of God and not just more of this life. But we're in the fight of our lives at times trying to get more of this life and just a little bit more or maybe just the same amount or sometimes even a little less of God. But the writer understands that the two aren't compatible. That you're either seeking to be satisfied by God or you are really hinging your satisfaction on how your life is going and how you perceive that it's going. See, the psalmist understands that life will pass away, but the satisfaction of the soul in God is for all eternity. We need to learn from poetry in God's Word. We need to experience God as the poet experiences God. We need to be educated about God in that dimension. We need to connect with God in that spiritual dimension. And we need to believe in the Gospel and find our ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in God. Poetry is given so that we will find our heart's desire met by God, with God Himself. Just God. And in it then, our soul will be truly satisfied with God for the sake of God alone. Let's pray. Almighty and ever-living One, we're so blessed that You have made our hearts in such a way that they resound when we hear your word and that you feed us in a way that food feeds us and drink nourishes us. You feed us in your word to where our souls can be satisfied with you. But our sins, O Lord, get in the way of us understanding and perceiving and knowing you and so change our hearts, dear God. Make us a people who actually are satisfied in you and in you alone. Forgive us for using you in relationship to try and get the lives that our hearts have wanted and instead change our hearts like you changed the psalmist's hearts, Father. Make us more like the psalmist who find our soul's satisfaction in you. And may you do it not for our glory, but for your glory, Father, to the end that we would be like the psalmist and praise you during the night for all you have done on our behalf in meeting our soul's greatest need. And so we worship you even now in Christ, in the power of the gospel. Amen.